As we come to consider what we have read this evening, the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 11 says something that is very simple but very important. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The Lord Jesus Christ has come to John. He has a message for each of seven churches. And the Savior says, He that hath an ear, let him hear. And of course, the majority of us, if not all, have ears. But yet we know that you can have ears and not listen. Those who are parents know your children have ears. But do they use their ears? Sometimes they do not. And my parents would say the same of me. I have ears, but they don't always work uh, because uh, they work well nowadays. But when I was a child, they didn't always work. And here the Savior is saying, He that hath an ear, let him hear. There's something important to be said. There's a great message here for the church. And those that have ears must use those ears. They must listen and they must take heed of what the Savior is saying. And of course, that is true, whether it is in these letters in the book of Revelation or throughout all of Scripture, the Lord is speaking. And we need to give an ear, and we need to listen and to obey. And of course, when it comes to hearing, we can hear, we can listen to what is being said, but we also have to obey or hearken or act upon what is being said. In other words, that saying, in one ear and out the other, should not apply. We should listen and hearken and do that which the Lord says. And here there is this great message to this particular church, the church at Smyrna. And Smyrna was located on the coast of the Aegean Sea in what is known today as modern-day Turkey. It was a prominent city in the ancient world. It was around 40 miles north of Ephesus was one of the principal cities of Roman Asia, and it was beautiful, and it was a large city. It sloped up from the sea. There were many splendid buildings that formed what was known as the Crown of Smyrna. It is interesting that as we consider what the Savior says to this church, the very profile of this city was known as the Crown. And the Savior speaks about that crown of life. It is reputed to have been the birthplace of Homer who wrote uh, the Odyssey. It was a city that had ties to Rome. Its allegiance was unquestioned. There were temples to several Roman gods there. And like many cities in the ancient world, paganism abounded. The city was refined in culture, pagan in its philosophy. And it was said that no religion that challenge the culture of the day or the pagan religion was popular in this city. But despite all of this, in this city, and of course every city in this world is sinful and is wicked, we could say the same things about Calgary as we could say about Smyrna or Ephesus this evening. But in this city was a Christian church. We do not have the record in Scripture as to its formation, but in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, we read these words. The preaching of the gospel is in view, and this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And there's an implication there that 
This church in Smyrna perhaps grew out of the witness that was found in the city of Ephesus as the Word of God spread around that area. But Smyrna itself was not an easy place to be a Christian due to the persecution of believers. This letter that was penned to this church was a letter of commendation. The Lord Jesus wrote seven letters to these churches, and there are criticisms, especially Ephesus. Ephesus was praised for its works and its labor and its patience and laboring for the name of Christ and not fainting and standing strong and working hard in that labor. But the Savior said, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. And how sharp those words are. Doing all the right things. Engaged in everything that they ought to be engaged in. Looking at those who said they were apostles. Trying them. Proving them. Finding out they were not apostles. Then acting upon that and separating from them. Being patient for the name of Christ. Working hard. All these things are great. And what does Christ say? Your love for me is not what it ought to be. In fact, it is lessened, it is weakened. And therefore, all their labor was external. All their labor was a show because inwardly they lost their first love. And how sad and how sharp this rebuke was to the church. But here in Smyrna, there was nothing like that. The Lord Jesus Christ does not come to this church and say, you have a problem. A serious problem that needs to be dealt with. He doesn't. He comes and he commends them. It was a letter of comfort, giving consolation and encouragement. It was a letter of challenge because they were challenged to continue for the cause of Christ, not to give up, to keep pressing forward for the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear believers, we come to consider this passage this evening. I want us to consider afresh that the Lord can often ordain times of suffering for His church, times of hardship that we perhaps know very little about. But yet we have a glorious Christ who is with us. And the church of Smyrna reminds us of persecution. It reminds us of suffering. And it refreshes us with the truth that Christ is the great source of help and comfort for His people. And as we come to this church this evening, if there's nothing else that you take away with you, take this away, that tonight this church reminds you that in the difficult times in life, personally and as the church of Christ collectively, Christ Himself is your great source of help and comfort. And so I want us to consider, consider this evening Smyrna, a blessed, persecuted church. A blessed, persecuted church. Those two words together may seem very strange. How can you be blessed and persecuted and all at the same time? But yet, when we look at what was happening here, they were persecuted, but they were a church that was blessed by God. I want you to notice here, firstly, that the church will face trials and afflictions. The church of Jesus Christ will face trials and afflictions. That's a truth. It's a reality. 
It varies in its intensity. It is diverse because there are hardships that are hard, hardships that are trying, that may result in martyrdom, as we can see in church history. There's also other trials that are far from martyrdom, but at the same time they are hard and difficult also for the Lord's people. The church will face trials and afflictions. And the name of this city is interesting, and it is appropriate, uh, because it gives us a description of the condition of the church of Christ. The name of this city in the original Greek is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So, the Old Testament written in Hebrew was at one point translated into Greek, called the Septuagint, and the Hebrew word for myrrh was used to name this particular uh, city. Or the Hebrew word in uh, the, or the Greek word in the Septuagint was used. And myrrh was one of the city's ex exports. And the wise men came to the Savior. They brought three gifts. One of them was myrrh. And when the bark of that tree was crushed, it created a sweet-smelling aroma. And as these believers, and this is the thought here, as these believers were crushed by the world, there was this sweet aroma of their testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. The word means bitterness. And the life of a Christian in Smyrna was that of bitter affliction, yet there was this sweet aroma because of the Savior. And to get that perfume, that fragrance, there had to be a crushing. And when we think of the church of Christ, the church of Christ, when it suffers, when it's persecuted, when it's crushed, is there not that sweet-smelling aroma of the Savior? So not that love that we can see for Christ in these things? James Ramsey was a contemporary of the theologian Charles Hodge, and he said, of all these seven churches, no one stands higher in the estimation of her Lord than this, yet in outward estate she was the worst of them all. This church did not do anything the Savior rebukes. We've mentioned that. That does not imply that this church was a perfect church. For no church is a perfect church. And we must remember that. The problems that one church may have may not be found in another church, yet they themselves can have a whole different set of trials and afflictions. If you're looking for a perfect church tonight, it's going to take you a little while. Because here on earth, there is no perfect church. Because the church is made up of what? Sinners saved by grace but made up of those who can sin, made up of those who are not perfect. And therefore, the church here on earth cannot be perfect. We should strive for perfection. We should strive to be like Christ. We should strive to flee from sin, but we cannot be perfect. And this church, the Savior commends this church, but it was not a perfect church. Not a perfect church. But the implication is this church was free of gross sin that had infected other churches that are written to here. And we see the Lord's tenderness also. Could the Savior have found some fault in the church in Smyrna? He sees all things. 
As we read verse 9, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. He knew. He could see. Could he find a fault? Could he find a sin? Yes. But he passes over these things to give comfort and grace to his people. And in verse 9, he speaks of this tribulation the church suffered. The Greek word refers to pressure. We can think of an object being crushed by one's hand or, or by a vice. If you go on to YouTube, I don't, I'm not advertising YouTube, but I'm advertising one particular thing on YouTube. Uh, there is a video that shows an elastic band being placed around a watermelon and another elastic band. And as the video continues, this watermelon is covered in elastic bands until the pressure is great. And in slow motion, you see the pressure building. And you see that watermelon explode. And the aim of this world and the aim of Satan himself is to do that very same thing to the church of Jesus Christ, to put pressure upon it, pressure from different things. And as that pressure builds up and builds up, whether it's in the life of the believer or in the church itself, that pressure is building and building and building. And it leads to a difficult life for the church of Christ. And here in Smyrna, that is what was happening. The pressure was building. They were being crushed by this persecution. It was a church that was under attack. It was afflicted from without. There are words used to describe its troubles. Verse 9, we see the word tribulation, we see the word poverty, and we see the word blasphemy. Tribulation, poverty, and blasphemy. Life was not easy for these believers. And that word tribulation refers to opposition and to intense persecution against them. When you think of a mill and a millstone, you think of it being used to grind the corn or, or wheat. And the idea in that word, as I've said, is pressure. There's a pressure building up here. There is this crushing. History would say that the names of those in this church were discredited. Their property was taken. They suffered loss. They suffered torture and death because of their faith in Christ. If we take that thought of tribulation and look across church history, we see those who, who suffered, those who lost their lives, those whose daily lives were affected because they loved the Savior. We can think of the early days of the Free Presbyterian Church. And if you have been converted to Christ the early 1950s into the 1960s in Northern Ireland, coming out of the Presbyterian Church, your family had been in the Presbyterian Church not for five years or ten years, maybe a hundred years or two hundred years, going right back to the plantation where many Scottish Presbyterians came over to the province of Ulster and and were planted there and had farms there. And it is, the stories are told of those who were saved and came out of the Presbyterian church where the pastor knew nothing of Christ. And they sided with the free Presbyterian church and they sided with Ian Paisley and to their families. To their families, that was not the right thing to do. It caused splits and divisions within the home. When it came to the workplace, there were those who 
struggled to find employment because what they believed was very clear and noticeable and known. The account is told of a man who left the Presbyterian church, and the minister and elders of that church, some of them showed up, not to talk to him, not to sit down and discuss their differences with coffee, not to read and pray, but they took their fists and they used their fists against that man. Such was the opposition in those days, and today we know nothing of it, nothing of it. I remember applying for my job in Canada Post, and of course, my resume is covered with the Free Presbyterian Church. If I want to tell the truth about my employment history, I have to put down the various churches that I have pastored on a temporary basis as my work history. It meant nothing to Canada Post. It meant nothing really in Canada. It didn't mean a thing at all. Maybe, maybe that's not a good thing. Maybe it should mean something, but they didn't care. They didn't care whether I was a Presbyterian or a free Presbyterian or a Reformed Presbyterian or an Evangelical Presbyterian or whatever kind of Presbyterian. They didn't care. But back then, and it can be hard for us to understand, there was opposition, great opposition at that time, at that time. And as believers in Christ, we can face opposition. We can face the mockery of individuals. It's a difficult thing to bear. We see poverty here. This goes a step further. The Lord says, I know thy poverty. And that word means to possess absolutely nothing, having nothing but life itself, a life that they desperately clung on to. Because of Christ, they were in poverty. And we can think, well, what does that mean? Does that mean they lost their home? Does that mean they lost their money? Does that mean that as churches they had very little financially with which to help and support one another? We do not know, but it means there was poverty. There was very little of this world's goods. Here was a church, and to side with that church, and to support that church, and to support the name of Christ, and to live for Christ meant poverty. Poverty. And we perhaps know very little again of what that meant. But it was a hardship this church endured. We can think here then, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. And that word means to slander. There were malicious things said. There was blasphemy. It is said that there were those that gossiped and slandered and used malicious words, saying things that were against reality, saying things that were against reality. And so the church was slandered, the believers were slandered, because those who were Jews and were not, but were part of the synagogue of Satan, were spreading things that were untrue about the church of Jesus Christ. And these Jews, because of their history, because 
They had the oracles of the Old Testament. They should have known better. The Word of God tells us, thou shalt not bear false witness. They had that in their Scriptures. Yet, there was this sin that went on among them. But the Savior said in Matthew 5, Blessed are thee when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Blessed are ye. And dear believer, these are some of the things we may have to face. Maybe we face them to a lesser degree. Maybe we face them to a greater degree. But this world is against the church of Jesus Christ. And there will be afflictions. And there will be trials for us to bear. We see uh, the persecution uh, to be experienced here also, because notice what verse 9 or verse 10 says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. The Savior is saying, I know thy works, I know thy tribulation, I know thy poverty, I know the blasphemy, but fear none of these things, those things that are still going to come upon you. They're being told there's more things to come. They're going to be cast into prison. Who's behind it? Satan himself. The devil is in view. The devil is the great source of this persecution, the evil one. And therefore, they were in prison not necessarily because of themselves, but for the cause of their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is said of Polycarp, who was associated with the church in Smyrna here, uh, that he was seized one day. It was demanded that he would recant. He was brought into the arena. He was given the choice. He could curse Christ, make a sacrifice to Caesar as a god, or face his death. Death or curse God and sacrifice to Caesar. And he said, Eighty and six years have I served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And immediately he was taken and he was killed. He was one among many. One among many. You shall have tribulation ten days, the Savior said. Some would say, well, there were ten separate persecutions under the emperor. Sometimes we speak about someone's days as years. There's different views on what this shall be, but there's another perspective here that is comforting to the church of Christ. Tribulation, ten days. When we think about that, what does that mean? The persecution is but for a short time. It's limited. One day it will end. One day it will stop. It is ten days. And the Lord is saying here that relatively there's a small period of time. There is a period of time that will come to an end. This persecution is not for ever and ever and ever. It has a commencement and it will have an end. Dear believers, is there not encouragement here that the persecutions and the trials that we face for Christ... They are not eternal. They last for a season, for a short period of time. One commentator said, though ten is symbolic here, it 
It specifically indicates to the Smyrna church that her suffering is limited. Satan is on a leash and is allowed to attack the church only so far or so long as it pleases God. It is limited. And our own trials, our own tribulations, our own sorrows, are they not like that? There's a limit placed upon them. They may go on for years, but there is a limit placed upon them. The apostle said in 2 Corinthians 4, For light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And Paul here was looking at trials and said, compared to glory and compared to Christ, these things are only light. The word glory there speaks of a heavy weight, a heavy weight and valuable, the glory of God. And compared with each other, the trials of life are light in comparison. And yes, we may feel they are heavy. We may feel they are burning down upon us. Let us remember that in the great plan of God, these things are limited. They are not so great that we cannot continue with the help of our God. It is an affliction that lasts but for a moment. That is what Christ is telling this church. It will be hard. It will be difficult. But it's only for a moment. It's only for a moment. Be faithful. Be faithful. And Christ is sovereign. He knew. By nature, we are not fond of sovereignty. We're not fond of having others above us. Certainly, this world is not fond of having Christ upon the throne. But yet, the Lord is one who is in control. He knew what would take place, and He encourages His flock. It's limited. It's for a season. It's not going to last forever and ever and ever, but be faithful. Be thou faithful unto death. And dear believer, we need to be aware that we will face suffering and trials and afflictions, suffering for the cause of Christ in many ways. But let us be faithful to Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. Let us remember that God is in control of these trials. God has a plan, and God has a purpose. But notice here, secondly, the church has a divine treasure. The church has a divine treasure. There was poverty. Verse 9, I know thy poverty, but thou art rich. How can you have nothing yet have riches? How can you have nothing but yet have everything? And despite this poverty being stripped bare of everything that belonged to them, the Lord says they are rich. And how does the Lord say that? How can He say that? How can He say that? When we think of the church to uh, Laodicea, this is a church that had many riches. Many riches. A church however, that had problems and difficulties. A church that spiritually had very little. 
But yet the church here in Smyrna had nothing but was rich. You see, the church at Laodicea, the Lord said to them, verse 15, I know thy works. Verse 15 of chapter 3, I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou were cold or hot, so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. And the Lord is saying to this church, you're rich. You have all these riches. You've said that yourself. But yet, those riches that truly matter, you do not have. You're poor. You're needy. You're naked. You have none of these things. None of the things that matter. He says, come and buy gold from me that's tried in the fire. And what did the church at Smyrna do? They bought that gold tried in the fire. They had nothing physically, temporally. They were enduring persecution and hardship. If you were living in that city as a Christian, well, would it not make sense to get out and to leave and to go somewhere else? They were poor in poverty, but because of Christ they were rich. And dear believer, we need to understand that ourselves. Though we may have little in this world, though we may have nothing in this world, though we may have riches in this world, potentially, we need the riches of Christ. They're far greater than all the riches in this world. This was not a carnal, temporal, or material richness. It was spiritual. And there's only one thing a man can take out of this world that he didn't bring into it. Christ. Christ. You can't take your car. You can't take your house. You can't take anything else. The old pharaohs would have been buried with riches. And whenever those British archaeologists and others went into those tombs, they found those riches. The pharaoh couldn't take them with him when he went into eternity. They were there. And the same is true today, that our riches, our material wealth is left behind. We can't take it with us. The only thing we can take is Christ and His so great salvation. Some in the Christian church have picked up the worldly view. They view God's blessing as what we possess is what we own. Some in the church can also view God's blessing as the church having a building and the church having riches to a certain extent and the church having all these things. A nice building. A building well decorated. A building that is well maintained. God's blessing is upon us. Look at the building. But God's blessing is not seen in material things. He can bless in a temporal way. But the reality of God's blessing upon us is spiritually. It's spiritually. We could go into many great buildings in this world today and find spiritual deadness. 
spiritual deadness. I remember going into a church in Romania many years ago, a church that was just a basic little building. The pews didn't have a back on them. They were a bench. If you got tired during the sermon, well, you were going to have problems if you fell backwards because there was nothing there to stop you or support you. You'd fall on to the person behind you, and uh, that would be quite embarrassing. There was nothing like that. There's no sound system. There was no screen to come down. There was no internet connection. There was no camera that we use for promoting and presenting the gospel of Christ. None of these things. Simple little building. But oh, how those people love the Lord. Their riches were not seen in their building. Their riches were seen in their love for Christ and in their kindness toward us. We went in and we had a supper there and they were giving us their food for the journey back. We were, we were well fed, but they, were, they had very little compared to us, but they were willing to give it because of the love they had for Christ, because of the spiritual riches they had. And that was evident. You can go to churches, perhaps, that are far less than what that little church was. They had a roof over their head. They had a building they could call their own. You can go somewhere else that they maybe meet outside or in someone's home, and they have absolutely nothing at all, not even food. They're poor yet rich. Dear believer, the principle for us to understand is that all the external wealth of the church does not mean God's blessing is upon it. While God's blessing can be upon it, it, does, it is not the sole indicator that God is blessing. What is the spiritual temperature? What is that church doing for Christ? How is that church preaching Christ? What about those who are the members and supporters of that church? Do they love Christ? In life, we can have poverty, but there, there are riches in Christ. Paul spoke about the unsearchable riches of Christ. And how could this church be classed as rich? Because of Christ, the one who is unchangeable, the one who is eternal, the one who is victorious, the one who is all-knowing, the one who is, in, who is the sovereign, the one who is their Savior. They had salvation. They had all the riches of eternity because of Christ. Oh, this world, while we have to live in this world, ultimately this world does not matter. It is Christ that matters. And this church in Smyrna had a better set of values. They contemplated heaven. They were poor, but they were rich. The Apostle Paul said to the church at Colossae, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things in the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. What did the Savior say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And yes, we have to work. Yes, we have to labor. Yes, we have to provide for our families. Yes, we have to provide for the work of God financially. 
But let us not make finance and wealth our motivation in life. Let us make Christ and His Word our motivation. Because He first loved us, we love Him because He first loved us. Oh, they were committed to living for Christ. That persecution could have ended, it could have eased if they had forsaken the Savior. They calculated for heaven also. Matthew 6 reminds us, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and dust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moss nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Dear believer, where is your heart tonight? Is it truly on Christ? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Do you love Christ this evening? When we think of this church that was persecuted for Christ and they were faithful to Him, if persecution came upon you, how would you react? Who is this Christ? You think, I belong to this church? You think, I love this this Savior? No. You deny the Savior. You betray Christ. Many have. Many have. Where does your heart lie tonight? Dear unsaved person, when you think of the Savior and His work upon Calvary, where is your treasure? Is it in this world? A treasure that moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves can break through and steal? Or is your treasure with Christ, knowing your eternal salvation? Or when we think, when we think of this, When we think of this world and we focus upon Christ, we focus upon our Savior, oh, how it helps us when it comes to suffering for Christ. If He is everything to us, is it not easier to suffer for Him? If our possessions are everything to us and we lose them or they get destroyed because of our faith in Christ, then how will we approach the Savior? Will we deny Him? Will we deny our faith? While goods in this world have their place and they have their importance, Christ should come above it all because we have a divine treasure. Do you treasure Christ? Do you love the Savior? The great answer to persecution. The reason this church was a blessed, persecuted church is because of Christ. They knew Him. They loved Him. And then finally, the, the, the church is assured of a glorious triumph. The church is assured of a glorious triumph. Verse 10 tells us, I will give thee a crown of life. They were to be faithful. And Christ encouraged them and, oh, how it would have meant much to the church at Smyrna. Christ knew their suffering. Christ saw their suffering. And He's now encouraging them to not fear and to hold on to the end and to go forward for God. They didn't know what the future would hold. But Christ was encouraging them and He knew what would befall them. And there's this encouragement to be faithful. We see that in verse 10. Be thou faithful unto death. Keep pressing on. And dear believer, though 
we may suffer, though we may have trials and hardships of many varying degrees. Let us be faithful to Christ. This church that was enduring sharp persecution was encouraged to be faithful. Their persecution, perhaps, was greater than what we may have faced in the past. What we may face in the future, we do not know. But they endured greatly, or they suffered greatly, but they were faithful. Let us learn from their faithfulness. When we think of Scripture, when we think of the reformers and the martyrs, oh, how they suffered, but they were faithful to Christ. And you see, the glorious Savior, was He not faithful to us? There upon Calvary, He suffered, and He died. He was faithful in the work of salvation for His people, for He finished that work. He was faithful to us. To us. They were to be faithful unto death. How far is that work of faithfulness to be? It's to be unto death. Whenever that death will be, whenever that death may be, we're to be faithful unto death. It may be difficult, but be faithful. The Lord is with us. And this church was encouraged simply by knowing the Lord knew their problems. The Lord was with them. They were not suffering in vain. They were not suffering alone. Christ was with them. And there was an encouragement here in this crown of life. Their faithfulness would not go unnoticed, and it would not go unrewarded. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life, a symbol of honor. Verse 11 tells us they would not be heard of the second death. There are two deaths, the physical death and the second eternal death in hell. And those who are faithful to Christ receive the crown of life and not the second death, for they are in heaven. Oh, what a reward that encouraged God's people to press forward. And dear believer, what is the worst that could happen to us in this world? A brutal death? The death of us and all of our loved ones? But yet, that physical first death is the gateway to being with Christ, which is far better. Oh, how hard death and sorrow can be. But yet for the believer, we do not sorrow as those that sorrow and grieve because of Christ. Because of Christ. Oh, are we looking forward to glory? Are we looking forward to seeing our Savior face to face? Whatever we face in life, whatever hardships come our way, let us look forward to seeing our Savior, to praising Him for all eternity, and to staying fast for the cause of Christ. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. I pastored two churches in Australia. It was a joint charge. I pastored for two years in Northern Ireland before I came here. And in Australia, I did a series on the life of the Apostle Paul. And in Northern Ireland, I did a series in the book of Acts. And the way it worked out, my last Lord's Day, 
in both churches, I came to this uh, particular passage. And I didn't work it. I didn't tweak it. It just so happened. And uh, I just kept preaching in series, and I thought, what shall my last message be? And I thought, well, I'm in Acts 20, and we have Paul's farewell here. And I did read this passage in light of this evening, and uh, we are leaving the congregation here. We've attended here. We've worshipped with you for three years, numerous occasions. We've preached the Word of God here. We've enjoyed our time, our fellowship with you. And I was thinking of these verses, and the apostle is speaking to the elders of the church, but he's showing forth his love to them. And he speaks of Christ. He preached the Word of God here, verse 31 tells us, for three years. He was with them for three years. And in verse 32, he says, And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. When we think of Smyrna, a church that struggled through persecution and suffering, when we think of what we may face in the future, we know not what, Whatever befalls us, whether it's good or whether it's bad, let us remember the words of the apostle here, his closing words, commending the church at Ephesus in this context to God, to the word of His grace, that word that is able to build us up, that word that is able to strengthen us, to help us endure through hard times and through persecution. Commending them to the Lord who is able to give them an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Great words, great challenge, and encouragement from the apostle to the church here. And the same is true for us this evening. Whatever is in the future for us, we need to be commended to God, to the word of His grace, which is able to build us up. That is it, simply it. If we are to endure and to be faithful like Smyrna, we need to apply verse 32. If God blesses in great ways, we still need to apply verse 32. Let us do so. And may we know the Lord. May we know the word of His grace. May you know that which is able to build you up. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the sure foundation that is Christ. We rejoice in Him. We thank Thee for the Word of His grace, which is able to build us up. And Father, we pray that each one here in Thy church, Thy people, would know that Word from Thee, that Word that is able to build them up. And when we think, Father, of the future, whatever the future may hold, we pray Thou would encourage them. Encourage them to Have that sure foundation, the word of thy grace, which is able to build them up. Father, we pray that we would be faithful for thee. 
whatever the future holds for us, great trials, great afflictions, we know not what lies before us, but we pray, Father, that Thou would give us grace to be faithful to Thee and faithful to Thy Word. We do pray Thy hand would be upon us. We give Thee thanks for the refreshments in a few moments' time, for the fellowship we will have one with another. Bless, we ask of Thee. And then take us to our homes in safety. May the love of God our Father grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit rest, remain, and abide with us both now and forevermore. Amen.